Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome everybody to another episode of the Thought Adventure podcast. Today we have a very special episode with a very, very special guest, uh, Brother Farid from uh, the YouTube channel Farid Responds. And we're going to be talking about uh, the this, this uh, you know, uh, latest trend uh, that we were, were it is becoming more and more uh, prevalent uh, in many places that is Quran only uh, uh, Islam uh, and uh, uh, brother Farid has joined us today from his channel Farid responds he uh, is involved in apologetics he does uh, video responses to several um, you know uh, apologists Christian apologists uh, and and uh, you know uh, he he responds to arguments against Islam and defends uh, the Quran and Sunnah, and we're very happy to have him here with us today. Jazakallah uh, khair for joining us, Brother Farid. Um, so, Jazakallah khair, and thank you for having me. Wayek. So, so um, this 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 new trend that that um, uh, well, I don't know if it's new, but uh, it it seems to be. Uh, 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 like how, like their voices, this this the voices of of of, of Quran only seem to be getting much louder these days, and and um, we want to talk about this from 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 many different uh, angles, uh, and uh, I think the at the very basis we want to know what the motivation is for this, what 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 their motive is for this, whether um you know whether it's a good or bad motive. Uh, Brother Farid, what do you think is the 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 driving uh, the main driving motive behind this movement of Quran only? Um, to be honest, Dahi, uh, I've been having a lovely conversation with uh, Hadith Rejector during the past few days. Um, we've been going back and forth, and it's it's been confirming what I've always believed, which is it comes from a good place it's they come across a hadith that they simply dislike they feel that these hadith are problematic to islam um or problematic in the way that they portray the prophet peace be upon him and due to that they tend to generalize and instead of you know simply rejecting that specific hadith or instead of um looking up what scholars have said they react in, in a strange way and they do that by rejecting everything ultimately and and it seems like um that seems to be the origins of, of that from my experience how about you okay and and is it more of a like um uh uh you know mistrust in like the sources like like i would imagine that that any muslim or somebody who claims to be a Muslim would, you know, uh, obey the commandments of the prophets or follow the way of the prophet if, like, he were alive with the prophet. So, is it more of like we don't trust this is from the prophet, or the prophet isn't like authoritative? Um, I I haven't come across anyone um, who said that the prophet, peace be upon him, is authoritative until I was with uh, Jake on. A live stream. I believe there was someone who said that. Um, most of the cases, it's I haven't seen, or or they they would argue that um, the issue is with the narrations themselves, and they reject the attribution of these narrations to the Prophet peace be upon him. That's what I. That's like I'm, I'm assuming that's the majority of them. 
so to bring Jake into this, because he's uh, Jake. Jake uh, has a history with 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 the Quranic movement. Uh, I, I guess the first question I'd like to ask you, Jake, is what initially led you to believe that we should only follow the Quran and reject the Sunnah? I think. Uh, oh, is Jake there? Yeah, 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 I'm here. I apologize for not having my camera on. I'm I'm kind of scrambling around. I've got uh, people at my house, so unfortunately, I'm gonna have to do this from the car. Uh, but my original introduction was because I didn't know anything about uh, the religion of Islam. I started uh, reading the Quran in virtue of of, of a friend um, speaking to me about it, and I started reading it and he would say things to me that were clearly not in the Quran. So I had no concept of this idea of Hadith and a lot of things he said didn't really make sense to me. Not only did I think that they weren't in the Quran, but they seemed to be going against it at certain times. Now this was based on, um, some of it was just due to him that he wasn't really accurately transmitting it. But other cases were due to me just being naive of the religion in general. And um, I actually held a stronger opinion in the sense that I did not think that the Prophet ﷺ was authoritative apart from the Qur'an. And many of the people that I was involved with at the time held the same position I don't want to say that I'm sure we'll get somebody like that today, but I, I I wouldn't be surprised if somebody came on the stream and said similar things um, because they have this idea that the Quran and Allah alone is a legislator and he's the only authority. So apart from him, uh, the prophet couldn't, he didn't even have any other revelation and because he didn't have any other revelation that was authoritative as far as the, the deen goes, um, th there is nothing else apart from the Quran to be followed. And so I had this opinion to the extent that if the prophet was before me at that time and told me to do something that was, you know, not mentioned in the Quran that was supposed to be a part of the religion... I would have said that, no, I wouldn't be obligated to do this. Now, I've spoken to Edip Yuxo on his YouTube channel. He's a very popular uh, Quranist. And he flat out told me the exact same thing. I don't, I don't, I'm not sure 100% if it was actually during the debate or another conversation that wasn't recorded. But he said that to me and so have many other Quranists. So... I do want to make a distinction between those who say it's merely an epistemic problem that we, we just cannot be sure that this is actually from the prophet versus saying, well, no, um, you know, it's not a matter of it being from the prophet. The fact of the matter is it could never be from the prophet because he wouldn't say anything like this because he even understood that his authority was only with respect to the Quran. So we have to distinguish between those two groups, and they both, of course, have problems with them. But I was in the <laughs> more 
uh, I would say stranger category that the prophet didn't even have that authority whatsoever. Okay. And, uh, and, and, and that's of course probably going to be because of uh, what, uh, what you saw as explicit references in the Quran that like um, there is no other guide besides Allah's words or, or something to that effect. Right. Yeah, and then the, the Qur'an claims to be, uh, you know, clear, sufficient as a guide. Um, yeah. it, it's, it's, it's fully detailed. It's an explanation of all things. It's the best hadith. All these different kind of things. I actually truly thought that the Qur'an was telling me, as well as other believers, that all we needed was the Qur'an and that's it. We didn't need... There's no secondary source whatsoever. Great. So, I mean, I guess, like, logically speaking, right, and I, I don't know if Brother Farid uh, would agree that, I mean, if it is the case that Allah says in the Quran that you do not need the sunnah, I mean, let's let's assume it's as explicit as that, then, then clearly, uh, then, then, then we don't need the sunnah, right? But, I mean, it's the whole question is going to be whether that is explicitly stated or even implicitly stated within the Quran. I personally don't think it is. But um, I guess to start from the very, you know, foundation, uh, let, let's try and define sunnah, uh, Brother Farid. If you could just give us a, a, a working definition for what sunnah is. Well, linguistically, it means the path or the way. Um, among uh, you know, scholars, they would say a sunnah is um, not not the not the fard, but rather like any. Um, excuse me, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, like any any anything that's like mustahab, anything that's recommended, uh, recommended act. Um, but generally, generally, the sunnah includes the the statements, actions. Um, physical description of the prophet, peace be upon him, and his uh, approvals. That's what generally a sunnah is. Yeah, and um, so from from the Quranist perspective, obviously, uh, he, he he's going to uh, need evidence from the Quran that the sunnah is authoritative, and obviously, uh, so would we. Uh, so I guess I'll, I'll throw this question out to the three of you. Uh, what evidence do we have from the Quran that we have to establish the Sunnah? So um, maybe maybe we can start with the brother Sharif because uh, he hasn't spoken yet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, inshallah. So just but before yeah. that, I just wanted to also just quickly mention the motivations uh, that I sense, and obviously there are going to be different people with different motivations in terms of rejecting the Sunnah. But in the experiences that I've had, which is, you know, I've met people for the last over 20 years or so who've rejected the sunnah, it generally is because they see a contradiction between the West, sort of the society that they live in and the values and the ethics of the society that they live in, which is mainly a liberal secular society, and what Islam teaches. And they're trying to reconcile the two because liberalism has become this paradigm by which they sort of view everything you know if it's going to be good it's in accordance to sort of liberal secular capitalist values if it's bad it's going against that going against human rights etc and so what some muslims do is when they come across an hadith or certain rulings which they find that contradicts with their particular uh, mindset uh for them for some of them the ones i've come across they try to discard the hadith because it gives them more wriggle room in order to sort of interpret the quran 
to fit within the standard, you know, narrative uh, received opinion of the societies that we live in. So sometimes the discussion really isn't about the particular text per se, because I think the text is pretty clear within the Quran. Yeah, uh, you have many verses of Quran, like for example, uh, what Allah Subhanahu wa Taala says in I think it's uh, Surah An Nisa, verse fifty-nine. Oh, you who believe, yeah, you ladina amanu, ati Allah wa ati Rasulah wa ulil amri minkum. Oh, you who believe, obey Allah, obey the Messenger, and those in authority from amongst you. Now I know. You know, when you present these types of verses to people who reject the Quran, reject the Sunnah, they'll have their own particular interpretations. But there's many dozens of ayat like this that talk about the obligation to follow the Prophet You've also got, you know, uh, mass reportage of hadith of the of the actual what the Prophet said uh, to say follow the Sunnah. You've also got the consensus of the companions as well, uh, as well to say to follow the Sunnah and. You know, pretty much all of the scholars throughout history, certainly orthodox scholars, have all said follow the sunnah. There may have been ikhtilaf, differences of opinion of what constituted the sunnah for different scholars, but they all simply they accepted this bare minimum. So, um, you know, so that's one ver- uh, one evidence, and I'm sure the other brothers will explain the other evidences as well. Mm-hmm. Abdul, I think you're muted, bro. Can't hear you. Uh, sorry, sorry. Apologize. <laughs> so, yeah, just just before we move on to Brother Farida, I, I want to say that, that that motive that you just mentioned, I think uh, that's that's the one I can relate to the most. I mean, as a Muslim like who was born in the West, um, I, I think that 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 uh, you know uh, uh, you know cultural aspect uh, is 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 very very influential in especially when when Muslims who aren't uh, very uh, you know familiar with Islamic terminology and Hadith uh, terminology and and look at it in a very decontextualized way and they sort of juxtapose that with where they grew up, uh, their culture and their, their surroundings, uh, kind of very shallow reading of both, you know, their prejudices and, you know, cultural presuppositions with also a very shallow reading and a decontextualized reading uh, of the Hadith. And uh, I mean, we're going to come to the, the the part, of course, later in the discussion about the how sophisticated the science of hadith is, and how like like I personally couldn't like take an isolated hadith and think that myself as a layman I could come up with some conclusive, uh, you know, hukum or something from that. And and that's something we we really do need to discuss. Uh, but brother Farid, I mean, so so um, that that Quranic evidence, right? That uh, that that we need to establish the Sunnah and that the prophets uh, the prophet is authoritative uh, alongside the Quran. Uh, I mean, it is is it clear cut? Oh, definitely, definitely. I liked uh, Sharif's uh, the the verse that he mentions because it specifically says, um, "Obey Allah and His Messenger." And those in in authority from among you. Now, the Quranists say. Or hadith rejectors, they say that. Uh, and Jake, please do correct me if I'm wrong. Um, you've been yeah. there, so so they would say this is only when the Prophet ﷺ is saying something that fits into the Quran, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Now, that's not in the verse. The verse explicitly or simply says, "Follow Allah, His Messenger, and those in authority from among you." It doesn't say, "Follow." The messenger, if he's saying what you find in the Quran, doesn't say follow those that are in authority if what they're saying um, fits or is exactly what is said in the Quran. 
it simply says it like that. Um, it simply says follow them. Um, mm -hmm. So it is it is binding evidence. And many verses, the Shafi mentions multiple verses, um, um, verses like. Uh, um, I, I need to look them up. I need to look them up. I don't, yeah. I don't want to butcher them. Um, but yeah, there are many verses that, that speak about reciting in hikmah, the hikmah, and that uh, there are verses that imply that the hikmah is something that has been revealed. Now, the hikmah in itself, the wisdom, is something that has been revealed. It's something that, that is taught. It is something that is to be recited. Um, multiple verses in Surah Al-Hazab mention that in, in other verses in the Quran. And, and what the ulama have uh, stated is that the term al-hikmah here is referring to the sunnah. Um, and what, what um, yeah, so, so there are many verses, a verse that says, um, uh, after Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala um, reveals the Qur'an, preserves the Qur'an, then it will be upon him to explain the Qur'an. And, and how is that? How do, you know, but it's the verses suggests that it is separate from the Quran, and that's why the ulama have come and said this is referring to the Sunnah. Um, just give me a second. I, I need to look up the the verse. Uh, I see the few seconds. Yes, sure. yeah. While while Fareed's sure. looking up that verse, so so in Surah Seven, Nisa verse fifty nine. Yeah. So um, yeah, I was going to mention so, just on on that verse uh, for uh, Surah Nisa verse fifty nine as well. So what's interesting about the the ayah of Quran is that. It says, obey Allah, obey the messenger and those in authority from amongst you. In in the Arabic, the word da'a, which is obey or follow, is as a prefix to Allah, prefix to the Prophet. But it's not a prefix to those who are in authority from amongst you. And that's why the scholars say that when it comes to obedience to Allah, it's in its absolute sense, general. But when it, and, and the same word is used for the Prophet, so it's general in an absolute sense. But when it comes to ulil amri minkum, it's not using the prefix of obedience. So therefore, it is conditional. And then even in fact, the verse continues to go on. It says, if you differ upon a matter, then return it back to Allah and his messenger, whoever believes in Allah in the last day. So the, even the verse specifies very specifically. Now, I think personally, the reason why a lot of people find some... Uh, Sunnah rejectors don't find this convincing is because they don't understand how the Arabic language operates within the Quran. They don't understand how the Quran is not, you know, superfluously losing words. Every single word in its form, uh, in its placement, is used for a particular reason. Yeah. So the very fact that it has this obedience as a prefix to Allah and the Messenger is very specific. Yeah. It's not just a rhetorical device or just being nice or just repeating a point it's because there's a hukum attached to this a ruling attached to this sorry Fareed yeah uh, yeah and I, I heard uh, I heard uh, Sheikh Sharawi rahimahullah mention this point about and it's very profound it's 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 as if he's saying to authorities uh, and the, the prophet sallallahu authority is of course from allah but the ta'atu ulil amr is 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 basically conditional on the the the, the awliya's ta'a of allah and and, and the rasul so so that, that is that is actually very very profound and uh, and I think for somebody who does believe in the Quran, somebody who is a Muslim, they need to take something like that seriously, Sharif. The, 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 the choice of words, and we know that everything that Allah says in the Quran is said for a reason, and it has a hikmah. 
so so I think that's very important. Uh, so so Jake, um, you you talk. I've I've heard you talk about a lot of verses that are not. Um, it's not it's not that you know the verse would explicitly say uh, you know follow the sunnah, but it's more that if there was no sunnah, some of these verses would be incomplete or the instruction isn't clear. Uh, could you mention some of those maybe? Yeah, so I mean, one of my approaches with uh, these hadith rejectors, because I was in that position, is that I try to use the Quran to uh, basically debunk their position because they don't see hadith as a legitimate authority either because the sunnah is not an authority in and of itself, or they just think that uh, we can't know whether or not any of it is really true. So I don't really, I think it's a bit of a waste of time to use hadith to try to prove hadith when many times these people, they're not concerned with it. You have to start from the Quran, which is a source that they accept and demonstrate that, um, you can't even really understand the Quran without recourse to some other material. I mean, you can tell by reading the Quran, and this is something that I appreciated over time, uh, especially having conversations with people, um, that the Quran assumes many times that the reader actually has information apart from it. So, for example, it mentions, and this is, people think that these are trivial things, but they're actually important. I mean, when the Quran mentions the four sacred months and it talks about Hajj and these different things, it assumes, because actually the wording that's used, it says these are the well-known months. Now, it doesn't actually go and list off and tell you what those well-known months are, because it's assuming that, first of all, the immediate people that were around during the revelation knew what they were. They had access to the Prophet, alayhi salam, and they knew what these things were. Now, us today, if, if we don't have that access, we have to have some other material to go to. And that's what the sunnah is. It provides contextualization for these type of verses. Otherwise, there are plenty of things that Allah commands in the Quran that we would not really be able to obey or be able to follow because we just don't have enough information to fully understand what the command actually is. And it seems, and, and I got to a point where you, you either have to do one of two things. You either have to reinterpret things so much to just completely butcher the Arabic language for it to be saying something other than what it was originally intended. And then you just have a totally different religion or you have to say, well, yeah, this is what it means. And then somehow deal with the lack of details for how to actually carry out commands or certain religious practices. And it's a problem either way you go. So what I do is I try to point out first of all, certain things in the Quran that we're expected to do that we wouldn't be able to do unless we had other information, whether it be specifically with things of a ritualistic nature, whether it be Hajj, whether it be um, Siam, fasting for Ramadan, whether it be praying, which you're supposed to do every day. Um, all of these things, we would not be able to really carry them out. Uh, unless we had access to other information. 
even historical things. I mean, the, the Quran doesn't really explicitly tell the details of the Prophet's life, any biography about him. We wouldn't really know any of that information. It just assumes that the reader is going to have access to something else. So there's all sorts of problems. Um, but I think at the core, this approach, it takes care of all of the different permutations of the Quranist perspective, right? Because it, it deals with the, the person who thinks that the sunnah is not authority whatsoever because it's demonstrating, well, if you don't think it's an authority and you don't have this other information, then you can't really even follow the Quran pr pr properly. So it deals with that issue. And then secondly, it deals with the issue of, well, maybe the prophet was authoritative in some sense apart from the Quran, but the information that we have is just not on, uh, it doesn't have, um, you know, it's not uh, sound enough in order to establish that it's actually from the prophet, right? Now, if you say for the sake of argument, it's not, what I would argue is in some sense, you have to reject the Quran or just leave so many of these matters open and you have no way to really follow the Quran properly. So I think using the Quran in this way and putting it on the Hadith rejector to try to make sense of some of these things from the Quran alone is going to be very difficult. I mean, it's a legitimate procedure, even amongst us Sunnis. We have tafsir, um, you know, Quran bil Quran. We have this concept where you can actually make tafsir based on verses of the Quran. But what most scholars realize is there's limitations to this. You know, they still use other information outside of the Quran. And what I try to establish is that unless you do, the tafsir of the Quran can only get you so far. Unless you have this other information, you're going to be lost on many of these different topics. So I think that's um, a real issue. And then, oddly enough, I think, and I'm sorry for going on long enough, but kind of mm -hmm. dovetailing on what Sharif and Freed mentioned about this whole issue of liberalism and, you know, being raised in a secular society and having problems with some hadith and this and that, that's definitely a motivation. Some of them, I think it's a, a real motivation for them, even if they won't explicitly admit it, but that's a whole nother issue. But oddly enough, without the sunnah, many things that they think they would have a problem with the hadith, they should have a problem with the Quran and that without access to the sunnah, they wouldn't be able to contextualize some of those things. Controversial things like in chapter four, verse 34, everybody knows the, the, the verse where it talks about, uh, you know, supposedly beating the wife and what exactly that means without the sunnah to really clarify the context of what that means, you know, it, it's left open to interpretation. You could say, well, yeah, I could just totally beat the crap out of my wife for no apparent reason. I mean, it, it doesn't, it doesn't explain that the sunnah is actually what gives a context to it to make it seem for lack of better words, less harsh than it would seem from the Quran alone, which is the very thing that they're worried about. I mean, also, you have the issue with the punishment for the thief. I mean, it mentions chopping the hand off for the thief. Well, it doesn't go through the detailed explanation of 
when that should be done, when it shouldn't be done. If I just read that verse, I could say, well, if the guy goes down the street and, you know, for all I know, he was hungry, but he had nothing to eat and he stole an apple from from a local uh, vegetable or a fruit stand. Well, chop his hand off. I mean, what's stopping me from interpreting the verse of the Quran that way without access to the Sunnah? So the point is, is that apart from the Sunnah, many times it actually gives context for these things in the Quran that seem very harsh to restrict them in some sense. And if you only have the Quran, I would argue you would have a bigger problem and and <laughs> to, to try to uh, avoid that and contextualize it from the Quran alone that makes it palatable for a liberal and secular audience, I think is going to be very difficult. And the Sunnah actually makes that easier in many cases. Yeah. So, so I mean, um, thanks Jake. That, that was, that was really good. Uh, and just, just, just a comment there, just to clarify. I mean, I think generally speaking, like, like you mentioned the, 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 the verse about beating your wife, uh, I think it can be said that that uh, you know uh, that can be contextualized through the Quran in a way where you can't just go and like completely uh, uh, you know uh, uh, beat the crap out of your wife with 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 uh, zero restriction as if you beat her close to death. I think you can argue for that, but I think the general picture you are putting forward is that if we don't have external information, then a lot of these commandments and a lot of the things mentioned in the Quran almost appear out of context it, it almost assumes that you know you have this external source that's going to guide you on how to implement these things and i think you can even see that in the language so yeah, um, and yeah yeah and i think that uh, listen i'm not advocating for this type of beating or anything from the quranic perspective but i'm saying because i know from being in these circles that these guys struggle with that type of stuff and because they don't have a tradition to even base their uh, whether or not their interpretations of certain texts are legitimate, like we have a tradition with scholarship and we have access to the sunnah that we can actually look at and study with a scholar. They don't have any of that. So if I wanted to, what I'm saying is if I wanted to and I had that as many, I think, Christians and atheists unfortunately do have that evil intent within them to manipulate the Quranic text it's much easier to do apart from the sunnah and that trying to respond to those things and make arguments to contextualize them yes you can do it but I don't think it's very easy to do with the Quran alone that's what I'm trying to say especially yeah. when it comes to the issue of the the thief I mean um what are the circumstances in which this punishment is carried out for the thief? When is it not? When, what's the appropriateness of, a, of it? Is it one hand or is it two hands? Do you do both of them at the same time? I mean, all of these kind of things, I think, are, um, are not really explicitly explained in the Quran. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, and there's, there's a very interesting one about the Qibla. I think we'll get to that later. I think I, I first want to uh, ask Brother Farid about the reliability of uh, the preservation of the Sunnah, how the, the authentication process, because, I mean, if we're going to put aside the, 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 the radical camp that, you know, has that radical view that even if the prophet were alive today, he wouldn't be authoritative, because I don't think 
that can be taken seriously at all. Uh, uh, how do we establish the reliability of the Sunnah as it was transmitted to us? First of all, I'd like to thank Jake for those examples. Um, I haven't heard of those before, and I never really thought about how the Quran could sound harsher. Um, I think I've heard someone say that the Quran, I mean, the word hand, yet could even refer to up to the elbow, something like that. I've heard that. I've and heard it's here, here, or even yeah, here. Yeah. But it's yeah. restricted in the Sunnah by the wrist. Right, subhanAllah. So yeah, I'm, I'm going to be using Jake's stuff, inshallah, from now on. Um, very, very good stuff. Um, in regards to the reliability of the Sunnah, there's so much to say, where should I start? Um, okay, so basically, basically, um, the Sunnah is preserved through a, a science called the science of Hadith, and it is more um, meticulous and and um, a lot more complicated than anything that we have um, in any other tradition. Um, so I'd like to start off with that. It's based on primarily two um, conditions, which is the, the connectivity of the chain of narrators and the reliability of each narrator. And then you have other um, conditions um, like the narration being free from hidden defects and whatnot. But generally, it boils down to connectivity of the chain and um, the reliability of the narrators. Each and every single one of the narrators needs to be reliable. We need to have a biography for that narrator. We don't just assume that narrators are reliable simply because they're narrating a hadith. And... Um, we have the ability to not only solve issues like contradictions in hadiths, because that's something that occurs. Um, you have a narration that says that this is halal, and another narration that says that it's actually haram. And due to al hadith, we're able to solve those contradictions. We're able to point out not only which of the two views is correct, but we can specifically point out the culprits in the narrations. Um, we also have the ability to um, um, affirm which of the wordings in, in narrations with multiple variants is the correct one. We have the ability to determine the order of words in narrations. It's a very detailed science. And uh, that's due to the uh, effort that these scholars of Hadith have put in. Um, I mean, their lives. They've spent their lives doing this. And, I mean, there's so much to say. There's just so much to say. And and one can, can't can really appreciate it until um, they jump into it and uh, start applying this practically, picking up a hadith and going through the narrators and going through um, variant wordings and seeing what scholars have said about these different wordings and um, for yourself finding out why... Uh, a narration is authentic and why one is weak and why this wording is correct and why that one is false and why this one should not be attributed to the prophet peace be upon him but, but rather is a statement of a companion or a statement of a tabi'i there's just so much to say i, I i'm hoping that that's uh, that kind of gives an idea um, no no that's great that's great um uh, I think, I think uh, I, Abdul, I think the issue is is that when people think of hadith and they think of the 
chain of narrators are thinking of Chinese whispers. Somebody yeah. said somebody on a journey to another person and he said it to his mate and he said it to some Bob and Bob told somebody else, yeah. So they give this sort of impression. But I think as Farid mentioned, it's a very complicated science and the whole the whole science developed because they were, the Muslims were so concerned in the preservation of the deen that the, the very words of the Prophet وسلم, and the words of the Qur'an, you know, the Qur'an itself, were preserved. They even went to the level of preserving the Arabic language and the grammar, yeah, and the idioms of the language in order to preserve not just the wording of the, the text, the Qur'anic and the Sunnah text, but the way to actually extract the meaning from that text because they, they understood that language evolves over a period of time. And we see that type of meticulousness from the time of the companions. I think there's a story, uh, I think Farid probably knows it better, where Aisha radiallahu anha, uh, she asked her nephew, I think it was, Urwa, uh, to find from Abu Huraira a particular narration. And then a year later, ask Abu Huraira the same narration in order to see if there was any changes in the narration of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Yeah, in terms of the fact that whether he made a mistake, added to it, subtracted it, and when she heard it again, it was narrated as it was originally narrated. So this is a form of um, attestation by the companions. Yeah. Similarly, when Umar radiallahu an, uh, you know, I think it was Abu Musa al Ashari, uh, Abu Musa, uh, yeah, Abu Musa al Ashari. He knocked three times uh, on Umar An's door and then he walked away. And then Umar An said, why did you do that? He said, well, I heard the Prophet say that if you knock three times, you know, you hear no answer, then leave. And then he grabbed him and he said, bring your attestation. Yeah, bring somebody who can attest to what you said. And then, you know, he got very worried. And then he brought Muhammad bin Maslama. He came and he said, yes, I heard the Prophet say that. And Umar said, I didn't believe you were a liar, but I want to make sure that people are serious when they quote hadith. So this, this process of verification and meticulousness in conveying hadith was something that uh, was taken very serious from the very early period of time yeah, to ensure that there was no uh, changes that took place later on. And so, you know, it's, it is a very complicated science. You know, you have... as. <laughs> Farid who studied it properly will tell you you have Mutawatir, then you have Ahad, and then Ahad is Mashur, and then you have, what is it, Aziz, and the Gharib, and then you have the different classifications from Sahih Hassan, uh, Daif, and Maldun. You have the different types of Hassan narrations, different types of Daif narrations, and then how the scholars are able to piece them together, and how they can, you know, outweigh between one narration to another narration if they can't be reconciled. So it's not, you know, this simple Chinese whispers type approach uh, in regards to the science of hadith. And one just final point as well is that, you know, Sunnah is not just the hadith as well. So many of the Usulins, classical scholars, they classified Sunnah as also being transmitted by Ijma'a Sahaba. Yeah, what the Sahaba agreed upon is a form of Sunnah because if the, the generation of the companions acted upon something, it was either a proof for a particular narration that this was taught to the companions as a whole, or it could be independently as a form of transmission, uh, like a, a transmitted action from one generation to the next, or from the Prophet to the generation of the companions. So, um, 
Yeah, it's, it, like I say, it's a complicated science. It's the, and the reason why it's complicated is because they were so meticulous into ensuring that the sunnah was preserved. <clears throat> yeah, I think one other point we, we have to keep in mind as well is because with these uh, hadith rejectors who claim to follow only the Quran and that they reject hadith because of an epistemic problem, it's not because of the authority, it's because of the way that it was received, all this kind of stuff. The question that I have for them, and this happened on another stream that I think Farid and I were on, you asked them, well, how do they know that the Quran is actually preserved? And I mean, I had one guy tell me, well, the Quran says it's preserved. <laughs> well, so what? I mean, even that, even that verse, it could be argued is not merely just talking about the Quran. It's also referring to the Sunnah as well. But even if you wanted to I'll say for the sake of argument, okay, the Quran says it's preserved. What does that mean? That's just circular reasoning. It doesn't establish that the Quran itself is preserved. If I deal with a Christian and I say, well, how do you know the Bible's preserved? Well, the Bible says so. Do I just shake his hand and, and go home? No, because we wouldn't accept that type of argument uh, from a Christian. So why should we accept that for ourselves? There has to be something that we can actually look at, whether it be <clears throat> the transmission of the text, the oral tradition that we have, which is also in line with the, how we, we've uh, received the hadith and the sunnah. Um, so we can look at the oral tradition and say, well, this is how we actually received the Quran. This is how we re received the sunnah. We can compare the two. Uh, but if you don't accept that, then you're just basically blindly following it and using circular reason to say, well, I believe the Quran because the Quran says that it's preserved. No, we can look at manuscript evidence. We can look at how the transmission of the Quran was actually preserved. And we can compare that to the Hadith. And I'm not saying that they're on exactly the same level point because obviously the Quran was transmitted in a, in a much higher degree by the nature of it, but it was still in a similar fashion. So if you're casting doubt on the methodology of the transmission of the sunnah, then you should likewise be consistent and have doubt upon the Quran. Now, I'm obviously not advocating for that. I'm merely saying um, that the hadith rejector should be a little more self-reflective and try to be consistent with their criticisms. Have that same level of criticism from the Quran itself and see where that gets you. I don't think it's gonna get you very far. And I, you're gonna see that, I think if we get some of these callers, it's just blind faith. And uh, of course, I don't want them to leave Islam. I'm not saying that, but it, it's to show them that they're standing on shaky grounds because of their, like, in my opinion, ridiculous skepticism about hadith, and then they don't apply that type of skepticism towards the Quran itself. So it's an inconsistent methodology in their approach. Yeah, uh, yeah, uh, I, I'm going to come back to that because I have a very specific question about this particular point. Uh, but I just want to remind everybody right now that we're going to have uh, you're going to have the opportunity to call in and discuss uh, some of these points. So um, after after we we're done with this introductory phase, you should be able to call in and uh, and talk about this with us. And I saw a comment in, in the uh, I saw comments in the in the in the chat saying that, uh, you know, 
this is a sectarian, sectarian, you know, uh, uh, stream and approach <laughs> that we don't appreciate. You guys should make it educative and stuff. Well, I mean, it, it being educative doesn't mean you have to. You can't take a stance. So I can critique a certain view. So we we make we make videos, for example, critiquing materialism in an educational way. So you you can take a side and still be, uh, you know, the stream can still be educative and and objective and respectful. Uh, and it's not uh, sectarian in that, you know, uh, in that negative way that, you know, where we're, where we're trying to be disrespectful or, or, or uh, you know, yeah. just dismiss everything you're saying. We're actually saying we're actually taking all these claims seriously and we're responding to them. So, again, being be, this 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 stream being educational is not mutually exclusive with us critiquing one of these views. So, um on on what what you brother just said about the preservation of of uh, the sunnah and and it is a very extensive deep uh, technical science and sometimes the way i see it is is that it, it can be from a place of ignorance right like let, let's say let's say someone talks to me about quantum mechanics or what brother Fareed was saying earlier about the philosophy <laughs> that he listens to that, that 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 might sometimes go over his head if, if if I'm approaching a field that I'm not familiar with, uh, like like I said, quantum mechanics. If a, if if a physicist comes tells me, hey, you know, particles do such and such in this spooky way, and I have no context, no background, I'm not familiar with the field. It's I just find it not believable. I'm I'm like, what are you talking about? It sounds silly. And sometimes I think most of the time, the, the skepticism on the preservation of the stone that can come from that kind of angle, like. Like, come on, how do you know this guy said this, said this, told this guy that? You know that game of the Chinese whisper as Brother Sharif was putting it? So many names in the chain. It was so long time ago. It was 1,400 years ago. You, you paint this very simplistic image in your head, not knowing that there is a very deep, extensive, you know, science behind it. And there are people who are specialized in this. And it, uh, and it is a very... Uh, uh, as Brother Free put it, it is a very meticulous study that has been going on for 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 over a thousand years. So I want to ask if, if we put if we put uh, those people aside and think of your ideal Quranist who does know some of the science of hadith and does know the field of it. What are the most? Uh, I'm guessing you're laughing, Jake, because you can't think of somebody like that. Maybe, but <laughs> yeah, but, I, I don't but... think there are. I don't think there are too many. I mean, I'm not going to go on a tangent, but most of them, including myself, didn't really know basic Arabic. Now, I, I'm no by no means an expert in Arabic. I can just read and write it and have a basic level of of understanding. Even that. I kid you not, is far more than the majority of these Quranists. They have no idea about even being able to read the Arabic, let alone comprehend it. I mean, it's just um, it's just a fact of the matter. There's a very small number of them that would even be able to do that. But in terms of Hadith sciences, I mean, forget it. I mean, Fareed can attest to it when we were on the stream. We were asking them, I think it was Sheikh Uthman was asking them some basic questions. And it resorted into like, I forget exactly what the example was, but it was it was so absurd. The term that was used, he had no idea what it even meant. <laughs> he thought it was something totally different. So, um, yeah. yeah, that's why I'm laughing. I'm not saying no, they're not out there whatsoever, but I think it's like a needle in a haystack, basically. 
Yeah, yeah. It's it's kind of like asking somebody who claims to be, you know, philosophically sophisticated and critiques the, you know, the existence of God and stuff like that, what necessary being means and he wouldn't know, right? And 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 I've seen <laughs> yeah. I've seen some of these dreams with 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 you brothers and it it does seem to be that way. Uh what I want to ask is what is the most common objections that you've come across to to the preservation of the sunnah? What are the most common attacks? That, that you've had to answer. Maybe some of the more challenging ones, if any of them were challenging. Uh, Brother Farid, if you could uh, answer that. The Chinese, the Chinese whispers one is actually quite common. Um, I've, I've heard it quite a few times. And I mean, the intention of Chinese whispers is to have fun. It's, I mean, you, you sometimes you do have people in there who actually do kind of distort what they heard intentionally, right? But imagine that happened. And imagine you had a referee who would take people out and left only the people that would would be able to get the message off to the next person correctly. Now imagine, imagine if it was, you know, if it wasn't Chinese whispers. Why, why, why is it whispers? Why can't they say it out loud, right? So they're, they're actually narrating these narrations out loud. What if you play Chinese whispers with someone writing down what they heard? Sometimes they tell the person to repeat what they said. So you can't compare Chinese whispers and al-Hadith, um, subhanAllah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, there's so much. Yeah. I mean, I think I've heard that one a lot as well, the, the, the Chinese whisper. And it's kind of maybe, maybe it's the one that um, you could maybe relate to like in a, in, in just, from a place of ignorance like if you're very ignorant about a certain historical tradition and you just hear hey you know this guy told that guy told that guy told that guy this and that five thousand years ago you're like what you know he's just this 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 uh skepticism from a place of ignorance that that i was talking about earlier uh, uh jake what what are some of the more common arguments that you've heard maybe some of the yeah. more challenging ones uh, well, <laughs> I mean, I guess I'm biased to say it's not challenging, but another common one is, well, you know, Imam Bukhari didn't come until over 200 years after the prophet. And so, you know, it's not just the Chinese whispers that's a problem, but these books were not compiled until over 200 years after the prophet, uh, alayhi salam. And um, it's just not true. Like... <laughs> I mean, they don't even know, like on the one stream, they don't even know about Imam Madik and his Muatta, you know, so it's, um, and, and that's just one example there. We have other examples of, um, you know, Hadith being written down. So I think that's another level of ignorance is that because uh, Imam Bukhari's collection is probably the most well known, in especially to the layman, um, they think like the Hadith project started then. It's like, no, the Hadith project didn't start then. You know, Imam Bukhari was a compiler. He, he took all of these things and put it together in, in, in a neat fashion. But that's not when it started. I mean, the tradition was before that. And we have evidence for that in terms of orally as well as manuscript evidence for that. So I think that's another misnomer. And that's those, honestly, the, the Chinese whisper thing and, you know, Hadith came 200 years after the prophet. I don't know, Freed, I think those are, the, I don't know if you agree, but I think those are like the two most common uh, 
responses or objections that these guys have. And it's just, unfortunately, is based on fundamental ignorance. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. The way I usually deal with any criticisms made against Al-Bukhari is to say, you do know that everything in Al-Bukhari can be found elsewhere, right? And yeah. it's something that they're, they're usually not familiar with. So Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. I mean... So, yeah. so, um, so, I just, so, just, Brother I Sharif, to, uh, yeah, yeah, I to yeah. Add yeah. sorry, point as well. Oh, it's fine, don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> um, so just, just as a point, isn't it, is that the veri verification of hadith is not for 1400 years from our time, the verification of the hadith was from the first three generations, the latter part of the third generation of Muslims. So, Imam Bukhari, uh, Sunan Abu Dawud, Tirmidhi. They came around about the third century or so. So they were looking at the first three generations of, comp of narrators. It joined Imam Bukhari, Imam Muslim's time. The hadith had become widespread. Yeah. So they were now mass transmitted across the different regions. What was required by Imam Bukhari was to go back and sift through the chain in order to ensure which one was sahih and which one were not. That's what he was doing. And so he was looking at the three generations prior or the generations prior to him. Yeah. So he's not we're not talking about dozens of different people within the Isnad between Imam Bukhari's time and the Prophet. Uh, Farid, what's the golden chain? I mean the golden chain is free Malik. yeah Malik and Nafa and Ibn Umar. So, yes yeah. so some of them have different so we're talking about three different people yeah uh, between uh, or two people between Imam Malik and the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam and I mean uh, Imam Bukhari he has a golden chain and similar it's only like two, uh, three or four people between himself and the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam yeah so we're talking about not any uh dozens or hundreds of uh, uh you know uh transmitters of hadith rather we're talking about a, a small select number of those that chain you're not just going to have one chain this is the thing as well you're going to have multiple chains those other chains may be considered daif or hasan or lesser of a standard sahih but they support the Sahih chain in terms of what the, the chain is referring, the mutton, the report part of the hadith, yeah, what it's referring to. So, you know, you, you know, it's not like just one chain and that's it. This is what we would call the gharib narration, yeah. And in fact, some, obviously, Ibn al-Sada and others, they criticize this opinion, but some says gharib is not sufficient for Sahih, but it was criticized, yeah. But they would have other supports to those particular uh, chains in order to to substantiate that particular narration so um you know this is it's it's not like i said it's not a massive generational gap yeah we're not talking about loads of people uh we are talking about the first three generations we're talking about a set number we're not just talking about one chain majority of the hadith have majority of the 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 reports the mutton have multiple chains it's just that the other chains may not be as strong as a particular sahih chain that's collected in Mom bukhari's or Imam Muslims uh, narrations so they have multiple chains that attest to that uh, chain as well uh, so you have multiple chains as well uh, and then you have the process the further processes of understanding the biographies of each narrator so ilm al-rijal which is the knowledge of the men 
So you have a very complex science. You know, it's very difficult uh, to really try to explain the complexity of the science and the thoroughness of the scholars of hadith in a stream like this, yeah, because yeah. The, you know it's a very complicated. You have to go through the terminologies. You have to look at how they made assessments, how they looked at individuals, how they looked at attestation and criticism of an individual. You know, all these types of things are really important. The types of chains they were, whether there was a break in the chain Munqata'i, whether it was a break from the Sahaba to the point, you know, into the point, Southern with Sahaba missing, or is it another type of break, or is it how many types of break, or you know, is it connected? How many different types of chains are connected to that? All this yeah. all together. So it's a very difficult way to sort of explain, but I hope yeah. the readers at the uh, very least want to go into this a bit more detail and understand it, inshallah. Yeah. Uh, for that. So two final very quick points because we have people already waiting and we're going to start the calls. Uh, but the first point was about what Brother Jake just uh, said a while ago about, uh, you know, the Quran you know, having the same standard for preservation, the Quran and uh, uh, and and the Sunnah, and I'm happy Jake added that part at the end where he's saying he's not advocating for people to like distrust the Quran or 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 disbelieve in the truth of the Quran. He's just talking about an inconsistency, like an epistemic inconsistency, and 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 uh, and I've always thought of that whenever uh, uh, some some of us uh, use these arguments against the Quranists. Uh, I think that part of the end needs to be added because I think what's obvious is that the Quran, like like for me personally, as as an Arab reading it, uh, uh, and from other many other rational aspects that even a non-Arab can approach, is self-evidently of God. Is self-evidently the Word of God. So uh, uh, the 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 issue is that for, from my perspective, I think what the Quranists would like to say is that the Quran is obviously from God, and I have a rational basis from that. It's that it's from God, it's 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 uh, inimitable. Uh, you know, you have the Quranic challenge and whatnot. But what I want to say there is that you can say the same thing about the Sunnah. It's not like the Sunnah doesn't have evidences that it is from sourced in, uh, you know, the prophet of God, and that it couldn't be from uh, a man who wasn't a prophet. So uh, I don't know, brother Farid, if you have something to say about that, because we don't want to make it seem like we're telling the Quranists, you know, leave the Quran, right? Prophecies come to mind. That, that's one thing that comes to mind. Prophecies, stuff like that. Yeah. Um, prophecies before the time of, uh, I mean, uh, prophecies that were made before or, or before the time of documentation, and and uh, that came to pass after uh, the time of compilation of narrations. I mean, that's just like an example. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, to me, to me, it's just there's just so much. There's so much. So many narrations out there um, in general, and to assume that everything is a fabrication. Yeah. It, yeah, yeah. There, there, yeah, there is. A, there's even studies that have been done in terms of uh, a uh, geological evidence or astronomical evidence. For example, that there's a narration in which the time of the Prophet his uh, his son Ibrahim, he passed away. Uh, there was an solar eclipse. Now people have got done astronomical studies because we can map precisely when a particular uh, solar eclipse occurred and we know it occur occurred during the time of the Prophet within the Arabian Peninsula so these are supportive evidences I think there's also a similar solar eclipse that happened in the time of Umar 
And again, I think somebody did a, a particular study to demonstrate that the narrations that narrated this partic a particular incident during this particular period of time corresponds to the astronomical event of, uh, of what occurred. So there are other supportive evidence in regards to that. I think there's been certain uh, documentations that have been found uh, in regards to the, um, any of the treaties that the Prophet ﷺ made or the letters that he sent out. Some of them have been discovered and they accord to the narrations of the Prophet ﷺ that narrated what the contents were. So we knew the contents through hadith or oral recitation, which was then compiled by the latest scholars. And then later on, we find the manuscript evidence as well for this. Uh, but just as one final point as well, and maybe Freed can answer this point as well, is that the Qirat of the Quran, the way the the, the recitation, the, the readings of the Quran, you're going to have a real problem if you reject hadith and sunnah to understand what is the qirat of Quran, yeah, and how to recite the Quran. Because, for example, we have uh, in Surah Fatiha, you have Malik, King, Malik, uh, sorry, Malik, Master, Malik, King, and Malaka, yeah as different recitations but malaka is not considered part of the recitation of the quran it's shad yeah it's considered uh you know um rejected or just not acceptable within that so how do we know which one is part of quranic recitation which ones are not it's through chain of narrations so if you're going to reject chain of narrations you're not going to know whether it's Maliki Yomidin, Maliki Yomidin, or Malaki Yomidin, or any of the variants of Mim Lam Kaf within that particular surah, uh, because the written version of the Quran, the Rasam, didn't have the diacritical marks, didn't have the uh, the Fatah, the Kasra marks within within the, the Mus'haf. So it was through all recitation that it was transmitted from one generation to the next generation, through teach, student, etc. That's how we know uh, the different ways of reciting. I don't know if Farid wants to add to that because I know he's done some work on this. Well, subhanAllah, what you mentioned about um, the lunar eclipse, or do you say solar yeah, eclipse? Yeah, I think it was a solar eclipse time the Prophet Sallam. Right. Yeah. Okay, subhanAllah, you just reminded me of an example. This was something I was looking up um, ages ago. Um, I don't know how long ago this was, but I was looking up Ashura, the 10th of Muharram, in the first year the Prophet, peace be upon him, went to Medina. Okay, because uh, there's a report that says that the Muslims found the Jews fasting. Mm. So I had a friend who's, who's like, mashallah, uh, a master mathematician. He's like, don't worry about it. I'm going to cook up some sort of formula in order for you to determine, you know, something like, you know, the, the date um, according to the Jews on that day. Uh, and to see if that was a day in which um, they fasted in, and he failed miserably. So I had to, I had to just, you know, um, open up an Excel uh, document and just like type out all the months and copy paste them until I, I went all the way back to the first year. And indeed, it was a day in which the Jews fasted. Um, I can't recall what the day was. Tishri V'Av or something like that. So, subhanAllah. Um, yeah, like, what are the odds? Yeah. JazakAllah khair. So, I'm not sure if you guys touched upon this, Sorry about the really hexagon. quick. That, that's okay, man. My phone uh, overheated and it shut off. Oh, okay. You're, you're stuck <laughs> in the car, aren't you? <laughs> yeah. 
so um, we're going to move on to the calls in a, in, in a bit. So I just really quick, if Brother Farid, there was a comment here, like <laughs> very, very quickly. I know this can't be done quickly, but uh, saying you should get probably get Brother Farid to explain. Imam Malik, Golden Chain, and other famous figures, sons of Hussein al-Dayan and Sahabi and Sahabi and their children who were alive pre-Malik time. Just, just very quickly, you can give us an idea of uh, of what's being said here and what the significance is. Oh, sorry, I apologize. I just moved that. Yeah. And and other. Fried, you're muted. I think. Am oh. I fine now? No, 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 no he's fine. Famous, I can hear. I can hear him. Yeah. Another famous figure, sons of Hussein. Uh, um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what this is specifically about. Is this about the Shi'i golden chain? There's a Shi'i golden chain as well. There's, I, I heard Brother Sharif say something about the golden chain. So I, I don't know if that was, uh, if that's what's being said here. The Muhaddithin referred to multiple different chains as the golden chain. You had the golden chain of Al-Kufa, the golden chain of Al-Hijaz. You had different golden chains and different scholars would say this is the golden chain. Um, and they would see those chains as the most authentic chains then this, this specific narrator is by far the uh, most proficient narrator of hadith, and his teacher as well was the, the best uh, in, in, in terms of accuracy, and his teacher as well. And, and they would have like these narrations or these um, different chains that they would refer to as golden chains. Okay, great. Uh, so, so just one last question, uh, and I've heard this personally from some Christians and, and and one or two Quranists that listen, this is the Quran is the word of God right now. When you say that you need this external source in order to explain what the Quran says, or in order to, you know, uh, uh, perfect your deen, then the Quran is insufficient and that means it's imperfect. So for example, the Christian would say, Hey, I have the Bible, right? I don't need any external source. Um, of course, that, that that might be easy to respond to because I think even like like as, as far as the preservation of of the, the the Christian scriptures are concerned, I don't think they would even qualify to be at the level of hadith for, for us. Uh, but um, I, I, what would you say generally about that? Like, why is the Quran insufficient, and 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 uh, why is it that Allah requires us to go to this external source? alongside his words. Uh, maybe you can start with Brother Sharif, Brother Farid. Yeah. If Jake uh, wants to say something and then we can end it. Yeah, just really quickly. I think you, when you when you look at this question, is the Qur'an sufficient? You have to look at what the Qur'an says about itself. What is the nature of, uh, that, that, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is trying to explain to us about the Qur'an? Is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala simply saying the Qur'an is all you need and that's it. You don't need anything else. Or does the Qur'an clearly indicate to us that uh, you know we should be following the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam not just in terms of you know uh, his sunnah and, and in accordance but even how the prophet sallam relates and explains the quran so it's like for example in surah al-nahl uh, verse 44 uh, allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in, uh, to the effect that uh, with clear signs and books uh, we sent to the messengers and we have sent down unto you, O Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam, the reminder and the advice, I the Quran, that you may explain clearly to men what is sent down to them. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is mentioning within this verse 
and many other verses like for example uh, i think it's sort of ahzab laqad kana lakum fi rasulillahi uswatan hasana that indeed in the messenger of allah you have an excellent example so if you're going to take if you're going to say okay the quran is insufficient but the quran itself is saying to follow the prophet so understand the quran then you can't say it's insufficient because the quran is telling you the methodology by which uh, to understand the Quran, I go back to the Quran itself and also go back to the Sunnah of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam to understand the Quran. So it's and there's a there's a wisdom as well because sometimes when you read a book literature, it's very difficult to visualize how to implement it in a person's life. But when you have literature, the book, the Quran, and you have practical example of how it's being implemented then it makes what is being written within the Qur'an manifest. It's something that you can comprehend and understand in a better way. And so there is hikmah and wisdom from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that he not only revealed the Qur'an, but also he revealed the sunnah as a way to complement and add to the revelation of Islam so that we know and we can visualize Islam in the best possible way uh, in order to follow uh, what is required for salvation and the worship of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, the, I mean, for me, the 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 idea is that, uh, well, it's 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 not just the Quran that's been revealed. It's the Quran plus the living example of the Quran. I mean, that that just just adds to it. It's the Quran plus the practical, uh, you know, uh, um, practical application of the Quran, and and uh, uh, that tradition that you have, where the Quran has been preserved not just in text but as a civilization that the prophet sallallahu built a culture and a, a living example of how to implement the quran that 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 makes the quran even greater i mean i i, I it's it's not just texts in a book it's uh, it's 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 a book that has been uh, um, implemented and lived by uh, the the prophet وسلم, in the most exemplary manner and we can refer to that uh, uh, you know as as a reminder and as a guidance for how uh, this is not just a book to be recited it's a book to be lived by uh, 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 something else about the mubin part i, I want because i want brother farid and jake to give a last comment and then we can move on to the to to, to the calls the there a lot of people say Quran and Arabian Mubin, right? So the, the this this what does it mean to be clear, right? And and I find that strange sometimes. So you say if it's clear, why do I need an interpretation? Well, what Brother Sharif just said, I mean, so it first of all, it's self-explanatory in many of its 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 core uh, um, you know teachings, like Qulhu Allahu Ahad, for example. That's it's obvious what that's saying. But if Part of it being clear is that it is telling you that there is the Sunnah of the Prophet. That that's clear. I mean, you you can't you can't say that it would be unclear if it doesn't say that, and then we tell you that it kind of implies that you need to refer to the Prophet. But when part of its clarity is that it's telling you what interpretive tools and methodology to use in order to understand it, that's really part of its clarity for me. Uh, so um, yeah, if 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 brother Sharif, uh, if brother uh, sorry Farid and brother Jake want to say one last thing about that question, and then we can move on to the calls, inshallah. So the clarity of the Quran um, today is not the clarity of the Quran in the first century. It's not the same. It's not the clarity of the Quran to that first generation of Muslims um, when 
Surat al-Anfal came down and it's speaking about the Battle of Badr and the specifics. They were there. To us, we need to use all these tools in, in order to determine what these verses are speaking about. We need to know about the historical context. We need to know the language. We need to have an idea of what's going on. Um, the verses plainly, of course, they're not going to be as clear to us as they were to them. And that's why all these other tools are absolutely necessary. Yep. Jake, uh, uh, anything to add to that? Yeah, yeah I just want to, I mean, about the point of clarity. I mean, clarity is obviously going to be with respect to something else. It's not clarity in a vacuum. So <clears throat> if I start speaking in English uh, on this stream and somebody's watching it who isn't a native English speaker and doesn't really understand what's going on, are they going to accuse me, Jake, of not being clear because somebody doesn't understand me? Well, uh, I would hope not because then I'd probably be in big trouble. <laughs> but the point is, is that even the verse itself, it says it's an, it's an Arabic Quran. If you don't understand Arabic, I'm not saying that you cannot understand it at all from an English translation, but obviously anybody who knows anything about translation is that many times you have to use uh, different words or sentences to convey something that can be explained in Arabic in one particular word. It's not, it's not going to be as exact and as precise. And that's why what Fareed said about the original audience it was not only in Arabic, but it was in their dialect that they understood that they were speaking in to, you know, their friends and family. It's not like us today. And so the, the idea that it's not clear is, well, we have to ask clear with respect to what? Who is the audience? If it's an English speaker in America, well, yeah, he's going to understand a lot of it from the English text. But the Qur'an by itself, in Arabic, yes, it needs an interpreter. It needs to be explained in its proper context. And I don't see any problem yeah. I think I think we lost you there for, for a second, Jake. But but yeah, that, that was that was pretty clear. And yeah, so so it, it clearly it, you need to uh, whatever is clear, whatever you you're going to interpret or understand needs to be understood within a certain context, and that's obvious about any book, any tradition. Uh, so we're gonna start with the calls, inshallah. Um,